We're going to go ahead and deal with a new subject now, a completely different subject in this section, um, the sin of comparing. The worst sin you have never heard a sermon about is how I would describe it. The sin of comparing. And if you don't hate me yet, you will hate me halfway through this session. Um, because this is a very, very convicting, very, very convicting session. So I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. One of the reasons you've never heard a, uh, a sermon on comparing is because the most important verse on it in the Bible is nestled away in Ecclesiastes, which is a very difficult but very rewarding book to preach. And so most people have not heard a lot of sermons from Ecclesiastes. Maybe Psalm 73, which would be a great section to turn to as well. But for the most part, comparing is the worst sin that you have never heard a sermon about. I believe it's a deadly sin, but I believe that it is rarely acknowledged. And I think it's vital for us in our personal progress as believers and as we counsel others to come to grips with the reality and the danger of this sin and its biblical solutions because so many of the other things in our life, things like depression and all those kind of things that we struggle with are really driven underneath by the sin of comparing. So the key text in the whole Bible on this subject, Psalm 73, would be very important as well, but the key single verse is Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Solomon writes there, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon says that this rivalry then is a driving motivation. This rivalry, this comparing, there's different ways for your versions translated. I like rivalry. Rivalry is a compelling urge to equal or surpass someone else. And that's a definition of rivalry. So what Solomon's saying is every labor and every skill that is done under the sun is done from the motivation of wanting to equal or surpass someone else. And that has a destination called vanity and striving after the wind, emptiness. Now, what stands behind that rivalry is the sinful habit of comparing. Solomon does two things here. He asserts the universality of comparing and the severity of the sin of comparing. Let me walk you through that for a moment. Although very few people have given it much thought, the habit of comparing is one of the most subtle and most destructive sins that a believer in Jesus Christ can succumb to. And so my first question is, is this sin really as pervasive as Solomon says it is? And the answer is, yes, it is. In fact, I would be absolutely stunned if you have not participated in this sin today since you arrived here probably many times. Let's use the Sunday church service as an example. The Sunday church service is often a playground for the sin of comparing. An author named Dave Paulson, there's at least one of his books over on the table there, a very good author. Uh, Dave Paulson writes this, Perhaps on walking into the fellowship hall at church, A woman is instantly aware of what every other woman is wearing and has sized up how she compares. Yes, he is living under your bed. He knows you. 
Her gaze at other people, says Paulson, is conditioned to a status hierarchy defined by images of beauty and thus to the attendant jealousy, self-loathing, competitiveness, inferiority, superiority comparisons, and the like. All such preoccupations rob her of the joy and freedom of faith in Christ Jesus and sap energies that might be spent in loving concern for others. You are welcome to crawl out of here on your belly right now if that didn't convict you. Right? And if you're worried that I'm going after the ladies, don't worry, I'll get the men in a moment. Paulson is is all too right. Christian women relentlessly compete in their minds in a perpetual informal Olympics, comparing the behavior of their children, the orderliness of their homes, the smoothness of their complexions, the stylishness of their hair, and whatever. But, of course, men are just as susceptible to the sin of comparing. Christian men compare ties and cars and biceps, salaries, spiritual gifts, success of all types. We've all probably seen a leadership meeting where two men acted like two bull elephants pushing and shoving to see whose ego is the biggest and see who's going to get to run the herd. You know, the sad truth is pastors play the game too and probably more than any other Christians at all. They play it even more. They compare sermons and websites and budgets, congregation sizes, all of that. In fact, Solomon's observation is that the pursuit of excellence in our world is more often about excelling your neighbor than it is about excellence. Comparing is a pervasive sin. Solomon's right, again. But is it destructive? Is the comparing game as destructive as Solomon says? And here answer, his answer is absolutely yes. You see, when you play the comparing game, you either win or lose. You either win or lose. When you appear to win, the result is a sense of smug superiority. Bask in my glory, you second-rate excuse for a preacher, mother, businessman. On the other hand, when you believe that you have lost the comparing game, the result is a disabling sense of defeat and despondency, which is where Solomon goes in his verse. My children will never be as well-behaved as Susie's band of sinless angels, right? (laughs) Now, some people, oddly enough, seem to enjoy losing the comparing game more than they enjoy winning. They relish the self-pity, enthusiastically and continually beating up on themselves for a coming second. And they seem to enjoy that more than they would enjoy winning. Both responses, the self-congratulating conceit of the first response or the deflated defeatism of the second response, both are deadly and destructive to spiritual life. And I can tell by the number of people looking down at the table right now that the Spirit of God's working in your heart just like He works in me every time I preach this sermon, right? Whether it's the self-congratulating conceit or the deflated defeatism, both of those are a Christless, sinful self-focus. And have you ever done better as a Christian when you're focused on yourself? No. The plain truth is that self-focus is never a noble or honorable state of mind for a believer in Jesus Christ. 
Now, unfortunately, believers in Jesus Christ are as susceptible to the allurements of the comparing game as everyone else. For example, the Corinthian church compared preachers, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos. They compared their spiritual gifts, just about everything else as well, in an all-out comparing battle, and that was one of the major problems with that church. And, of course, before we stand back and lob stones at the Corinthians, we might say, he who is without this sin cast the first stone, right? And you drop all your rocks when that happens. Why? Because what we do at church on Sundays or in a conference like this can also be and is almost inevitably tainted to some degree by the mental comparing game. Hebrews 10.22 tells us to draw near to God with a sincere heart, a heart that's 100% sincere. And there is inevitably, for you as a believer, there is a noble, spirit-transformed part of you that, that is sincere. When you're there on Sunday, when you're standing here in the morning singing, when we're here sitting here listening to the Word of God, there is a part of you that is genuine and sincere and is really about loving Christ and serving the people around you. Absolutely. We do love God. We do love Christ. We love the church. We love our brothers and sisters. However, there is also at the same time another darker, slimier part of our heart in which lurks jealousy and selfish ambition, as James 3 calls it. See, isn't it true that we can have mixed motives? We can be both sincere and insincere at the same time. It's terrible, but it's sadly true. We don't mind sharing the glory with Christ, but there's a part of us that cries out for our percentage, for our cut, For example, I I need to ask myself, Joel, why do you craft your sermons so diligently? You don't understand that I do that, but but believe it or not, I actually try, right? Okay? Why do I work so hard at crafting my sermons? Is it because I want to glorify God with excellence? Because I want to help you, God's people, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and in love and obedience? And the answer is, well, yeah. But (laughs) at other times it might be, I just want to be known as a better preacher than the guy down the street. The majority of the time, I would be glad to assure you that the majority of the time it is for God's glory and for your good. But how easy it is in my fleshly moments to slip into the sewer of comparing and go for a little swim. And when I do, I come out dripping with either the, the smug arrogance of perceived superiority or the discouraged despondency of perceived inferiority. Maybe that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart, your moment-by-moment thinking, with all diligence. Then verse 25 says, Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. If you're trying to figure out what the guy's doing in the lane next to you as you're running the hurdles or whatever it is, you're going to wipe out on hurdle number six, right? Because you need to just look down your lane, says Solomon. Comparing is a spiritual habit. So subtle, so easy, so familiar, and so deadly. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of a desire to excel someone else. 
a desire of a rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Where does it lead? This too is emptiness. This too is vanity. Tevel in Hebrew, it's like the, the steam off of a cup of coffee. It's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone. It leaves you feeling empty. It's striving after wind. Look, mom, I got a handful of wind and there it's not. Now, as you can imagine, there are dozens and dozens of examples of the sin of comparing in the scripture. Lots of examples of it and its destructive results. Let's start chronologically. How about chronologically? The very first person to engage in sinful comparing was Lucifer, the archangel. He compared himself to God, longed to be first, and demolished the universe as a result. Cain compared himself and his snub sacrifice with Abel, and as a result, tumbled into sibling rivalry, including anger, depression, and eventually murder. Hagar became pregnant when Sarah couldn't. How are you feeling today, Sarah? Oh, I just can't fit in my clothes, and I'm feeling a little nauseous. How do you feel? Oh, sorry, sorry, didn't know you weren't pregnant. She despised Sarah for Sarah's inability to get pregnant. Sarah, of course, returned the rivalry full force, bitterly mistreating Hagar. Rachel and Leah, do you remember those two? Yeah, those lovely two? They partook in a sisterly childbearing contest that made both of them bitter and miserable. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father favored Joseph, their comparing led to hatred and a near murder that was downgraded to kidnapping by only this much, right? In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron compared themselves to their more illustrious brother Moses and were resentful because in the comparing game, they came out second and third in the reputation contest when compared to their brother. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses, they said? Has he not spoken through us as well, they complained? Comparing led them to undercut Moses' leadership and led God to afflict Miriam with leprosy. That scenario repeated itself in number 16 when Korah and the company, Korah and company compared their status to Moses and a fiery rivalry erupted in the nation of Israel and its leadership between them and Moses. Well, fiery from their side anyway. You've gone far enough, they said to Moses, for all of the congregation is holy. And of course, the only all they're worried about is them, right? Um, but they hide it behind that. All the congregation is holy. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of Yahweh? Well, of course, it was God who had exalted Moses, not Moses, right? And you probably remember the terminal destination of their sin of comparing. The earth opened and swallowed them alive and closed back over them. I suggest you not compare. Just be scared, right? Okay. King Saul played the comparing game his whole life always perceiving himself to be a loser in comparison to David. Saul compared his supposedly paltry successes with the spectacular, undoubtedly spectacular achievements of his subordinate David, and jealousy, suspicion, fear, unjust emotion, fits of rage, attempted murder, all of those were the result. 
In fact, if you ever need an illustration of biblical sin, just go to Saul. He probably has it, right? There's a very small chance that he doesn't. In Psalm 73, Asaph, the otherwise mature and godly music leader of Israel, compared his meager financial lifestyle to that of the wealthy wicked in Israel and nearly fell off the spiritual map as a result. The disciples in the Gospels, they played the comparing game. And like an all-comers football match, right? Heedless of the spiritual bloodletting that would result, they just piled in and guys are coming out with their arms sticking out their ear and stuff like that. Luke 9.46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And oh, by the way, Jesus is at the front of the group. We don't really need to have an argument about this, do we? Another world champion comparer was the Pharisee in Luke 18. He chose as his opponent a man who believed, he believed would be easily routed, the morally inferior tax gatherer. And the Pharisee's victory in the comparing game swelled his chest like an exotic bird performing a mating ritual dance. So he danced and he paraded and he crowed, I am not like other people. Whether it's the smug superiority of perceived victory or the discouraged feelings of meaninglessness, and I can never do this right, that Solomon points out in Ecclesiastes 4.4, comparing and its self-focus is a sin. It is a sin. Familiar, subtle, destructive, and deadly. You have no idea how much trouble this has been causing in your spiritual life. No idea. It's the worst sermon. Worst sermon. That's probably true as well. But it's the worst sin you've never, it's getting late in the day, I've already told you more than I know, so yeah, it's the worst sin you have never heard a sermon about, but now for the first time probably are. Now, I would suggest that our sins of comparing typically fall into two broad categories. We tend to compare success and we tend to compare situations. And so let me talk you through both of those for a moment. The success category is pretty easy to see. Christians easily fall into the ugly habit of comparing monetary, moral, ministry, or maternal success. And what you do is you pick a target, you pick a rival, you pick an opponent, and you subtly compare your success to his or hers. And you either celebrate or lament, depending on whether you win or lose the game. We all know what that looks like. You might call this kind of comparing uh, the sin of reputation, the sin of reputation-seeking. We lust for reputation. We lust for the reputation of success, whatever our circle or arena of effort is. For me, it might be preaching. For you, it might be something else. Now, a second category in which we struggle with comparing is the comparing of situations. What I mean by that is something very specific. We compare our present situation with our past situation or our perceived future situation, not talking about heaven. It's okay to compare this earth to heaven. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. You're supposed to be doing that. It's thinking about our perceived earthly situation in the future that's a problem. We're in Ecclesiastes. Go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 7 for a moment. And let me show you this. 
Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10 is a powerful verse for counseling the elderly. And anyone who is tempted to live in the past by comparing the present to the good old days. Why aren't things like they were in the good old days? Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. What he's saying is comparing your present God-given situation to the golden memories of the past is not a valuable or wise thing to do. There's no problem with having nice memories of the past. It's when you compare that to the present and are inclined to grumble against God because the present is not as good as the past or more likely of your memory of the past, because the past is usually worse than we remember. You remember the good stuff and not the bad stuff, right? Solomon says, that's not wisdom. Looking at your life today and say, well, why isn't it like 10 years ago or 20 years ago? He said, that's not helping you. That's not wisdom. It leads to frustration, to discouragement, discontentment, grumbling, and a whole host of other sins. If you need a biblical illustration, think of the Israelites in Numbers 11, longing for the leeks, onions, and garlic of their slavery days in Egypt, rather than being thankful for their national freedom, adoption by Yahweh, and being content in God's provision of manna. They're thinking about the good old days rather than rejoicing in the fact that God was giving them great food to keep them alive in the wilderness. And here's what Ecclesiastes says about comparing the future, meaning your earthly future, not your heavenly future, comparing your future to your present situation in some kind of perpetual discontent with your present situation. This is the person who's always saying, I can't wait till next week. I had a roommate in college who was like that. And at one point I just looked at him and said, I've never noticed that you enjoy this week. Have you ever thought about this week? And he was a new believer. He had never thought of this. You know, he's like, huh, you're right. He said, you know, I'm always so worried about next week that I'm not sure I'm really enjoying what God's given me this week. And so Ecclesiastes comments on that as well. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9. Everything that you thought the Bible never talked about, it's in Ecclesiastes, trust me. Ecclesiastes 6, 9 says, what the eye see, what the eyes see, is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. You're going to live in the future always. Oh, next week or next month. If I just get this or just that, it's like, how about if we enjoy what God gave you today? Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with anticipating the future. Um, especially I think for women, that's like 90% of the, of the, of the delight. Right? Um, men are probably a little bit different in that, but anticipation is very important. You know, your wife, guys, she likes surprises as gifts because she likes surprises, right? and she likes anticipated gifts as well. I'm going to give you something. See, it, I don't really use a cell phone, so believe it or not, there's still one of me left in the world. <laughs> A tablet is something that Assyrians wrote on with a clay and stylus, you know. That's kind of where I'm at. So, computer is a 
A computer is a typewriter connected to a filing cabinet that talks to other filing cabinets. That's all it is, right? So, so anyway, our, our bank cards are con- connected to my wife's cell phone because she actually sometimes has her on, hers on. And so, so sometimes when I'm coming home from church, if I've been teaching in our grade school of ministry or whatever, I'll stop and buy her something, you know, because I know that's ringing through to her cell phone as soon as it goes through, you know, you know. And she's going, "I didn't ask him to stop and get milk or anything. I wonder if he. I wonder if he got give me something. No, he didn't give me anything. Did he give me something? You know? I love torturing her for twenty minutes, you know, because the anticipation is part of the pleasure. And then I come home with her favorite dessert or whatever, and she loves me, and it helps, you know. She'll live with me for another day, you know, is what happens. Right? Okay, so. Solomon looks at it and says, make sure that you're enjoying what God has given in the present and don't always just be worrying about future situations so much that you don't enjoy the good gifts, relationships, and so on that he's given you now. You know, some singles are so keen to get married. Nothing wrong with that. I encourage that. And so keen to get married, they're forgetting to enjoy the gift of singleness to them. And I'm delighted for them to get married to a godly spouse but you know what? You might be so idolar, uh, committing idolatry and worshiping that married state that you've forgotten to enjoy the other good blessings that God's given you now. We all see that. We all understand that. So comparing of success or comparing of situations are present to the past or the future. Right? Those are devastating sins. It leads either to smug pride Crushing discouragement, rivalry, jealousy, bitterness, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, a destructive competitiveness, a grumbling or a lack of satisfaction with the things given in the present. All of those things ruin your life every day. And behind all of it, lurking hidden in the shadows is the sin of comparing. The sin of comparing causes pastors to change their, change their doctrine and abandon their biblical philosophy of ministry because someone else's church is growing faster than theirs. It causes seminaries to court the approval of theological liberals to boast their theological academic reputations. It causes women to push the line of modesty and to wallow in self-punishing pity parties. It leads men to take performance-enhancing drugs or to destroy leadership situations or meetings with a competitive, self-advancing agenda. Comparing destroys, my friends. It destroys churches, it destroys marriages, it destroys families, it destroys hearts. And God does not intend that you or I or any Christian live in the sewer of the sin of comparing. Say, okay, well, what would the solution be? If I'm going to counsel myself, and this is written more as a sermon, so I'm preaching it to you, but you can take these principles, obviously, and counsel anybody that you would be counseling. If I'm going to counsel myself or others, now that I'm aware of this sin that I've never seen but is probably dominating my life and thinking in an outrageous way, now that I see it, it is not enough to merely put off. I must put on. I must replace it. What's the clean water I'm going to use to drive into that pipe to push the dirty water out the other end of that pipe? Um, How do I get rid of the sin of comparing? Let me give you nine solutions. Nine solutions. Nine solutions to the often overlooked but deadly sin of comparing. Number one, turn to Colossians chapter 3. And for this, we're going to jump all over the scripture. Colossians chapter 3. 
put something in there because where we began is where we're going to end. So. Colossians 3. The first solution to the antidote, or, or solution or antidote to the sin of comparing, is work for Christ's reputation and not yours. Since the sin of reputation is a major piece of the comparing puzzle, then to combat it, we're going to have to consciously work for Christ's reputation and not our own. Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And stop there. We'll pick up the rest of the verse later on. Do all that you do, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not going to help you very much because you already say that you do that, as do I, right? There's nobody who came into this room today, came in here saying, I'm here because of me, and you're just all very blessed by that. And the fact that I am here, I'm, a God's, I'm God's gift to Christianity. And so you should be blessed that I am here. Cover your eyes because of the blinding glory of my light and magnitude. I'm filling the room. Right? Nobody walked in here thinking that. You wanted to come here because you want to serve Jesus Christ. You want to serve people and love them. That's true. But we all say that we're working to exalt Christ. But it is quite possible to intermingle genuine, true, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving motives with genuinely self-promoting motives. We put the one out front on the sign, but the other one's lurking in our heart, isn't it? In short, what I'm telling you is be suspicious of your motives. Be suspicious of your motives, especially if you're in any situation where tension or strife is arising. We are a lot more concerned about our reputations than we ever want to let on, a lot more. Furthermore, if you've had some level of success in what you do, and I'm going to ask you, please don't clap again at the end of the session because that's what I'm talking about here, okay? So I appreciate your thankfulness. That's very kind of you. Um, and I love doing this, and uh, I would do it for free. Don't tell them that. <laughs> I would do that for free um, because don't tell my elders that either because, you know, I would just do it because I love doing this. But, but you know, the truth is when you start to get semi-good at what you do, whether it's a preacher or anything else, People will often unwittingly, and with all the best intentions in the world, encourage an ungodly preoccupation with your reputation by means of some form of hero worship. And any other pastors in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's why I tell my church, just call me Joel. I mean, a you know, pastor is a functional title. You know, I, I'm fine with that. In, in Afrikaans, which is the Dutch uh, derivative language in South Africa, they call the preachers Durmini, which is Latin for Lord. Yeah, and there's only one Lord in Christianity, and I'm not it, in case you were confused. Just call me Joel. And if you're still in high school, you can call me Uncle Joel. If, you know, that, that might be appropriate. You know, but, but I'm just another member of this church. That's all I am. I love being a member of Grace Fellowship as much as anyone else here. I, I benefit from that. You know, the greatest blessing my wife and I have received outside of, you know, our marriage is, is just being in this church. And I just happen to be the guy who gets to be up front most of the time talking, but, but I'm just another guy 
right? I am just another guy, and I have a different spiritual gift than some others. And so, you know what? God's not worried about that. The ladies in the nursery, they get just as big a gift as the preacher does. Just as big a reward. Hero worship is very dangerous for preachers and, of course, anyone else who's successful in a business realm or anywhere else. Let me give you an example. Moses. Moses had to reprove Joshua's attempt to defend Moses' reputation as the prophet in Israel. You remember that situation? In Numbers 11, when some other men in Israel, the 70 elders, they started to prophesy as well, Moses chided Joshua for his panic. Are you jealous for my sake? Joshua's hero worship. Someone else is prophesying. Moses, you need to make him shut up because you are the prophet. That's not helping Moses at that moment. Right or wrong for those guys to do that. That is not helping Moses. Praise God he was the most humble man on all the earth because otherwise his head would have been so big you have to turn sideways to fit through the door. Joshua's hero worship was not helping Moses respond humbly to that perceived threat to his exalted status. And so, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your ministry, genuinely do what you do to advance the reputation of Christ, not yourself. Because you know what it's like. Some of you experienced this this morning. You're singing there, and you're singing wholeheartedly to God, hoping that the person next to you hears what a fine alto voice you have. Mixed motives, right? It's just crushingly disappointing to see that in our own hearts but it's so true whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus for those who are in ministry paul's powerful reminder to them was in second corinthians 4 verse 5 we do not preach ourselves but christ jesus as lord and if you want to talk about us ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake. Paul says, it's just not about us. It's just not about us. Someone has observed, there's no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit for it. I don't agree with that. Because we care very much who gets the credit for it. Jesus, right? We are those, Philippians 3, who glory in Christ Jesus. And so we absolutely want Christ to get all the glory. Now, that doesn't mean when people say thank you for serving in the kitchen or for preaching the sermon or, or for being a, a great mom or whatever it is, that you can't receive that graciously. And, you know, that, that, that's fine. Be encouraged by that. They've been blessed through, by God through what you've done. That's wonderful. But you know what? You know how you want to cling to part of that in your heart and say, yeah, Jesus is good, but, you know, I want my cut of the pie too, right? So don't worry if you don't get any credit why? Because it was all about Jesus anyway, wasn't it? I want it to be, but how many times are my motives mixed? When you are working for Christ's reputation in whatever you're doing, ministry or anything else, and happily disregarding your own, the noxious weed called the sin of comparing quickly withers. Because you're just delighted that Christ is getting all the glory. And that's the way it should be. Solution number two. 
if you're able to crawl out of that one alive. Solution number two is gladly acknowledge that success is God's gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, Paul is desperately trying to teach this to the Corinthians because in their pride, uh, they were masters of the comparing game in their childish, selfish, immature, fleshly living. Masters of the comparing game. So whether it's parenting, whether it's business accomplishments, whether it's ministry, both your success and, get this, and that of others, both your success and that of other people is God's gift. Gladly acknowledge that. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 3. As successful as he was in ministry, you know, there's some beatings without number and stuff to keep him humble in there. But as successful as he was in ministry, he says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Meaning the Spirit of God is not working in you, it seems, at that point. You're being totally fleshly and unspiritual. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. See, you can start to pull up by the roots that weed called the sin of comparing when you gladly acknowledge that God is the sovereign source of success. It just calms down the raging fires of comparing in your heart. You remember how that worked in John the Baptist's ministry? When John the Baptist's followers were panicking because Jesus' ministry was starting to eclipse John's, John reminded them a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him by heaven. And so if numerically Jesus of Nazareth's ministry is excelling my own, guess what? That's a gift from God. And so he delightedly embraced the fact that not only what he, John, was doing, And its effectiveness was a gift from God. But Jesus' greater effectiveness was a gift from God. And oh, by the way, he happens to be the Messiah, so that's probably okay. John's genuine trusting confidence in God's sovereignty and wisdom silenced the barking dogs of comparison in John's heart. Number three. Third solution. Remember that Christianity is a race, not a competition. Christianity is a race, but it is not a competition. Paul frequently, you know, as you know in the New Testament, compares the Christian life to a race, to an athletics event. However, neither you nor I are in a competition with other Christians. I, for example, am not in a race with John MacArthur or some other famous preacher. I'm not in a race with any of my pastor friends in South Africa. I run in my lane, they run in their lane. I run in my lane with my gifts and my strengths and, frankly, with my limps, weaknesses, and deficiencies as well. I'm just not in a competition with them. That brings so much relief to life and ministry and parenting or whatever it is. So much relief when you realize all I need to do is run in my lane. Someone else, God will worry about them in their lane. I don't have to compare. I don't have to contend. I don't have to vie. I don't have to compete. 
Not in ministry, not in family, not in business, not in academics. Do you see why the whole self-esteem movement is ungodly from beginning to end? It's putting the wrong person, a human rather than God, at the center of the picture. And secondly, the only way to maintain a high self-esteem is to endlessly participate in the sin of comparing. It's wrong everywhere. That's another session, by the way, that I won't get to today. But maybe we can do something tonight. I don't know. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I do what God has gifted me to do. God willing, content with whatever level of blessing he has chosen to dispense. My level of blessing is not, for example, John MacArthur's level of blessing, right? Uh, you know, God has just blessed him in a unique and wonderful way, and believe me, there's a lot of trials that go with that level of blessing too. Um, but you know what? It was never a race. I always want to be striving for excellence. I want to do the best that I can do. That's different than comparing. Right? That's striving for excellence. That's a beneficial competition with self, not with others. Why well, write a bad sermon if I can write a good one? Right? Uh, I always want to do my best within the legitimate understanding. And a, you know, being a perfectionist is a way to drive yourself to sin. And so, but I, I want to be excellent within a Genesis 3 fallen world, within my abilities. But if another gets more acclaim than I do, a higher post, a bigger church, gets to speak at a conference that I don't, right? No matter. I was never in a race with him anyway. That is just a great way to cool the bubbling pot of a comparing heart. Remember that while Christianity is a race, it is not a competition. The parable of the talents helps us remember, remember that. You remember it in Matthew 25, the slave who was given two talents was not in a competition with the guy who had five. He is never rebuked for, why didn't you do as good as the guy who got five? He's got his lane to run in with his gifts, and he just does what he can do with those. And both received the approving affirmation of their Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Always remember that Christ rewards the great and the small equally with equal joy, equal enthusiasm, with equal warm and approving smile, well done. Good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter if it's a church of 300 or Charles Spurgeon with a worldwide ministry. God will be happy as long as I'm faithful to love and honor him and do the best I can with his gifts. Number four. Fourth solution. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Why do I feel like I'm falling behind? Because my watch is telling me that. Okay. We started late, didn't we, Jeff? Yeah, okay, good. Don't say any more. Don't tell me how late. Even 30 seconds justifies whatever I'm going to run over now. <laughs> Solution number four. Earlier I listed a series of negative examples about the sin of comparing. There are a couple of positive ones in the scripture as well where guys get it right. One of those is found here with Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Paul, you remember, wrote to the Philippian church while he was under house arrest in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. And he notes that his two-year imprisonment in Rome had been used by God in an unexpected way to advance the cause of the gospel in that city. You don't usually lock up the world's greatest you know, evangelist, theologian, preacher, church planner, and expect things to go better. But God, of course, doesn't work according to our rules, and so it had gone amazingly well. However, tragically... 
For some less mature preachers in Rome, Paul's presence had led to an injection of comparing. You remember the verses, start in verse 15. Philippians 1, verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill. The latter, the goodwill guys, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. You know, I mean, we got a bigger church than the guy who's in prison. You know, how does that make you feel better? (laughs) Just think about that for a moment. Notice Paul's way of dealing with that. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will will rejoice. The principle I would draw from that is solution number four to the sin of comparing is refuse to be drawn into the game. Refuse to be drawn into the game, because that's exactly what Paul's doing there, isn't it? He refuses to be drawn into the fray, into the battle of egos. Paul's taking the counsel of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4 and looking either to the right or the left. He's just running in his lane. Those guys might have been in a race with Paul. Paul was not in a race with them. He refused to be drawn. In fact, what Paul did was thank God that something good was coming out of those preachers' ministries, even if their motives were sullied and soiled. That wasn't good. But hey, at least someone's coming to know Christ. I can rejoice in that. And that's really a fifth solution to the sin of comparing. Be glad, solution number five, be glad for the good that God gives through the success of others. Through the success of others. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Moses did the same thing in Numbers 11 with Eldad and Medad. And those two prominent elders in Israel were prophesying in the camp. First of all, some trouble-causing tale-bearer, there's always one, isn't there, <laughs> ran and reports, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, they're prophesying in the camp, right? And Joshua, in a fit of hero worship, leaps in to defend Moses' reputation. Only you can do, Moses, can do that, Moses, because you're special. You're the best. You're whatever. Moses just refused to be drawn into the fray. Moreover, he consciously focused on the good that Eldad and Medad were providing for God's people. Not any loss of status that he, Moses, might suffer. Are you jealous for my sake, says Moses? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. Wouldn't it be great, he says, if many godly men were receiving true, infallible, inerrant, divine revelation directly from the mind and the mouth of God? That'd be wonderful. Why are you worried about whether I'm the only channel or not? Like Paul, Moses refused to be drawn into the reputation contest. And he stilled the fleshly lusts in his heart to defend his unique and unrivaled reputation by rejoicing in the good that the success of others was providing for God's people. And that'll help you when the church down the street's growing faster than your church. Love for your neighbor helps quell the inner proddings to maintain a unique or unparalleled reputation. Solution number six, John chapter three. This is another good example of getting it right. Paul and John the Baptist both do that. John chapter three, verse 26. 
So John's disciples come to him. They said to John, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. By the way, Jesus got his credibility from you, John. What in the world is he trying to do, pretending now that he's hot stuff? He only got a platform because of you. He used to be your associate pastor, and now he thinks he should have the biggest church in this city or whatever. You know, I mean, this is exactly what goes on in Christian ministries all the time. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. You're the Baptist. It's your ordinance, John. Don't let that other guy steal him. I and you can't have another biblical counseling here because we are the biblical counseling church, you know? Uh, you know, that sort of attitude. Right? It's exactly what's going on. He's baptizing. How dare he? And all are coming to him. Right? And these guys are just falling apart. Right? They have fallen into the deep end of the swimming pool of comparing. Up to that point, John's ministry had been number one in Judea. He had the biggest numbers. He had the most influence, the most radical reputation, you know, you know hair and grasshoppers and honey, honey. Right? John's followers struggled to swallow the reality that John's ministry was being eclipsed by Jesus. John wasn't struggling. Why? He was just more mature. He refused to be drawn in. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. Right? And that's confidence in God's sovereignty that we saw earlier. Verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses. I said, I- I'm not the Christ. But I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. What made John great? Let me answer it in one phrase. He had the humility to embrace second place. He had the humility to embrace second place. And that's solution number six. Have the humility to gladly embrace second place, or third or fourth or fifth, if necessary. In 1 Peter 5, Peter said, You younger men, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. And truth is, young or old, hearts are tempted to lust for first place, for the top step of the podium, where the applause is loudest and the acclaim is the most enthusiastic. Humility gladly takes the second place. In fact, maybe even third or fourth or fifth if God chooses to exalt others. Humility kills the sin of comparing because we're just not in a competition with other Christians. Solution seven. Solution seven. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse three. I don't know if you've been introduced to this key verse or not yet. It sounds like you have. Um, Romans 12, verse three. Key verse. Seventh solution to the sin of comparing is employ sound judgment mixed with humility when you're evaluating yourself. Sound judgment. Do not exaggerate. Do not minimize. Mix it with humility and see who you really are. Romans 12.3. For though the grace of God, or through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment. And he's talking in a context of spiritual gifts. Don't get all puffed up because you got this gift and someone else doesn't. Right? Just look at it and say, God's given, it seems he's given me this giftedness and, and I, I want to serve him as well as I can. 
Have sound judgment. Do not exaggerate nor minimize the giftedness that God has given you, the role that you play. And you know what? Have sound judgment, evaluate it accurately, and then mix biblical humility in with that. It's vital that we accurately and humbly evaluate ourselves as we serve Christ, neither exaggerating or minimizing what we do. For example, a preacher might come to me and say, oh, you know, I'm just such a terrible preacher. And my question is to him, are you? I mean, do I need to protect the church of Jesus Christ from you and get you out of the pulpit and never let you close to it ever again? You know, that's probably not what he means. Maybe it's the case, you know. Is that true? Is that a true or sound self-judgment? Or is it a self-serving exaggeration designed to elicit sympathy or to allow him to wallow in that sticky, sweet puddle of self-pity that we all know and love and hate at the same time? Another pastor might say, you know, I, I just feel inferior when I hear famous conference speakers like, you know, John MacArthur or Ligon Duncan or whoever, when I hear those guys preach. You know what Paul's question would be, based on Romans 12.3? Well, are you? Are you inferior to them? And why does it bother you if you are? Ouch. The sin of comparing is defeated when we make sound, accurate evaluations of ourselves and are happy to live and serve with the gifts that God has given me. I mean, yeah, you know, I wanted to be an NBA, NBA basketball player, you know, yeah, Spud Webb made it, but I don't have a 42-inch vertical leap, you know, and so it's not happening anytime soon, okay? <clears throat> Christian life and Christian ministry is not a competition. It is not a race. And the spirit of comparing is put to death with a sword called humility and sound judgment when you neither exaggerate nor minimize your gifts. Solution number eight. Solution number eight to the sin of comparing is be content. Be content with God's provision of both success and situation. You see Paul telling Timothy that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In verse 9, he talks about the guys who are, 9 following, the guys who are not content. Because they're foolish and harmful desires, they plunge themselves into ruin and destruction and love of money and so on. Paul says, flee from those things. Run away. Run away. In the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.20, the content man will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You know, if I'm happy with my church of 300, I'm just not going to spend a lot of time panicking because it's not 3,000. You know, frankly, 300 is probably all the more that I can handle anyway. And so God's wise, and he's given me this package, and it's who I am, and it's what I do, and I'm just thrilled to be able to serve the Lord. And I, I just don't need to be looking in someone else's lane. Last, number nine. Back where we started in Colossians chapter 3. I said to the uh, track one the other day, or the other day, this morning, feels like another day. <laughs> this morning I said, you know what, if you're not sure how to deal with your sin, try thankfulness. Because that deals with about 95% of sins, and if it's in the other 5%, you'll figure it out, don't worry. And, but thankfulness is probably going to be your replacement. At least start there and you can move on. Right? And that's solution number nine to the sin of comparing thankfulness. Thankfulness. 
thankfulness. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 12 talks about put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving. You know, verse 14, love. Uh, verse 15, peace in your relationships. You know, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage. Now, as I read verses 15, 16, and 17, see if there's any repeated words or themes. One of the keys to Bible interpretation. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Did you see it? Well, I think you did. In one of the most important sanctification passages in the New Testament, the only word repeated three times other than and and the is thankfulness. Now, I'm going to have an uphill battle proving that thankfulness is three times more important than love. Okay, I'm not going to try to do that. But, but I think there's a point there. And in fact, if you look at 4.2, divorce yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Four times in a few sentences, Paul kept flipping the word thankfulness out in front of you. Why? It is one of the most essential characteristics of godliness. And it's also a way to kill comparing, not surprisingly. Daily, moment-by-moment, thoughts of gratitude and contentment, glorious replace and quench even the most fiery heart of comparing. So, comparing. It's the worst sin you have now heard a sermon about. And I honestly cannot tell you how if you work on this, capturing these thoughts in your mind and before they hit your lips or when they hit your lips... Right? how it will change your life and the relief and stability and contentment that it will bring to your life. You have no idea how much trouble this sin has been causing you. And so if you kill the sin of comparing, it will puncture your self-righteous pride. It will transform your blended motivations. It will quell your temptations to bitterness. It will rescue you from that sticky, sweet grip of self-pity. It will release you from the web of of morose discouragement and frustration. And it will allow you to run freely and quickly and unencumbered in a love for others and a love for your God dominated by a heart of thankfulness. So whether you're counseling yourself or someone else, that might be the most important thing you hear today. Okay, off you go. Enjoy a break.